0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. But about that day and the hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known, in the part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Okay, so we want to start off uh, our time this morning by saying Happy New Year. And I love the looks on the faces. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, which means it's the beginning of a new Christian year. And Joan Chittister reminds us that the church year does not start here because Christmas is coming. The church year starts here to remind us why Jesus was born in the first place. Most of all, it starts here to determine why we ourselves are here at all. During Advent, we remember that our God is a God who comes into the world. Not only is God living and active, but God steps out of the heavens, puts on flesh to walk among us so that we may be saved. Christmas is the celebration of the first coming of the Lord, but the Lord will come again. And so the ever-looming question is, are you ready? Better yet, a a follow-up question would be, are you sure? See, if you're like me, you've learned by now that sometimes you think you're prepared for something, only to find out you aren't. You think you've checked off all the boxes, you've got everything in order, in order and you come to find out that you've, you've missed something that changes the way you approach the situation. See, the seminaries, they do a great job of teaching pastors a lot of things about how to be pastors But any pastor who's been on the job five minutes will tell you a long list of things that they don't teach you in the classroom. See, when you start leading churches, you learn firsthand the difference between technically correct and practically correct. Now, I've had the rare opportunity of pastoring a church the entire time I'm in seminary, and it's been a good experience because you get to uh, apply the things in real time, apply the things you're learning in real time. You also get direct feedback about what you think you've just learned and what you actually need to learn, as all good Methodist congregations are want to point out to their young pastors. Turns out, I can accurately and consistently pick hymns out of the hymnal that go with the sermon theologically. It's a work of art. It's great. You should watch me do it. Only problem is, congregations never heard them, and they have no idea what to do with them. And so when I call the great Reverend Mickey Cloud for some needed wisdom, he informs me that after 40 years of ministry, that hymn has never come up once. I said, but, Dad, it works. It works really well with the sermon. He says, yes, you're right, and I've never played it. (laughs) Turns out being prepared requires more than just knowing stuff. You can know all the stuff, you can check all the boxes, and you can still completely miss it when the moment comes. Now, chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel is what some have called a a mini-apocalypse And so let me say that apocalyptic literature is less about the precise details of what, when, and where, and in a more direct sense, it points to who and to why. Yet even as we ask and answer those questions, we have to take those questions a bit more abstractly as we uh, try to seek meaning and understanding out of the text. One commentator says that out of its many functions, apocalyptic literature has an ethical motivation, It implores people to act in the present in a way that agrees with the understanding of the future. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is going to point us both to what is to come and to what we are to do now as a result of this final reality of his second coming. Now, our passage this morning says that nobody knows the time of the final days except the Father. But I'm going I'm to go ahead and say that of out of anyone, Jesus is going to be the least ignorant about the will of the Father and the final days, yet even he says that he doesn't know. So for us to sit here and try to figure out the time and the place that Jesus will come back is absurd. It's possibly even a little blasphemous. If no one knows but God, we think we can figure it out. Do we still think, like Adam and Eve, that we can be like God or know what God knows? Now, we may not know the time and the place, but we can be assured of the fact that our Lord will come again. So the question remains, what exactly is Jesus trying to teach us in this passage today? What is he trying to tell us to do to be prepared for that day to come? And sometimes it's helpful to understand a passage by first understanding what the passage is not teaching us. Jesus says that his second coming will be like the flood in the days of Noah. And the emphasis here is not on the wickedness that caused the flood, but rather the lack of preparedness of the people who got surprised when the waters came. They were busy with their everyday activities, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and they lost sight of the Lord. In contrast, Noah heard God, he listened, and he was ready. And what's interesting, again, is these activities listed here, they don't point to the people's sins. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So the list reminds us that even good things can become obstacles to God's directions for our lives. And we don't like to talk about the faith that way, do we? We like to be good people who don't treat each other too badly, who run an honest business, who go to church on Sundays. But Jesus is pointing us directly to the fact that even good things can get in the way of godly things. I think it's right at the top of the list of our sins In Western Christianity, we are so consumed with being good people and living our best life now that we fundamentally forget about God and we go on about in our own strength and we follow our own desires. We think that as long as we're good people and what we're doing is socially acceptable, as long as it doesn't directly contradict anything that we understand in the Christian faith that we're okay and that God is pleased with our efforts. But the warning from Jesus here is that we have let normal, everyday things in our lives consume us to the degree that there is increasingly less time for God in our lives. We talk about tithing and giving our first fruits to God, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Romans 12:1 says that our lives are meant to be a living sacrifice for the proper worship of God. And that means that absolutely everything in our lives, not just the parts that we don't mind giving up, but the totality of everything I am and everything I have. The most powerful moment in our communion liturgy, and I mean that spiritually, uh, theologically, and physically, the, the most powerful moment in our communion liturgy is when we say, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might become for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. We wonder what the difference was between the early church and the church in our day. Well, one of the differences is is that they believed that this reality, those words that I just spoke, so that reality of those words being remade in the image of Christ, they believed it to be a thing that happened during the communion event, that we could actually be consumed by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and that we could be transformed and remade new in this life. And as a result, we watched the saving power of God move across the first century in mighty ways and the word of God spread all over the world. I hear so many people today, and and I fall into it uh, just as well as any one of you, but we are more and more constantly telling each other that we cannot make it to this or that church event or, or that we missed our Bible readings or we don't have time for the Bible study because we've got all this other stuff going on. But what if we put God first? What if we couldn't make the ball game or the field trip or the movie night or the night out with friends or the TV because we were spending time with God? Prayerfully and earnestly and diligently seeking his presence. Let us put God first and then determine what we don't have time to get to later in the day, later in the week. Let us be a people who guard our time with God as much as we guard our time with trivial matters and watch us become a people of indescribable joy. Again, I'm I'm just as guilty as anyone else, but Jesus seems to think that this is the way that life is supposed to be. He's gonna give us another example of the exact same thing when he says one will be taken and one will be left. The two working in the field, the two women grinding the grain, they point us to people, what? Engaged in everyday tasks, just like the people in Noah's day. And Jesus, he doesn't mention why one is taken or why one is left, so it's unclear which one is better, right? Which one's better here? Well, it's tempting to think, That while uh, while they're both doing their everyday task, well, the one who was taken must have been about their Christian business just a little bit more than the one that was left. That's why they got taken. That's why the other one got left. That seems to be the implication here. Problem is that way of thinking is not biblical. That way of thinking is what's called rapture theology. And the problem with the idea of the rapture is it didn't come about until the 19th century. Early church didn't believe it. Jesus didn't teach it. And you might say, well, what about this separation of the sheets and the goats? Didn't Jesus say something about that? Yes. Yes, he did. But the end time judgment and the rapture are not the same thing. Also, this example is directly linked to the first one that Jesus gave in which he said what? As it was in the times of Noah. Well... Go back and read Genesis, I see that in the times of Noah, it was better to be left in the ark than it was to be taken in the flood. If anything, the ones who are taken are taken away for judgment, and the ones who are left are left to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh hmm So there's two options here, then, church. Either we've missed it for the first 1,800 years of church history. There's always been a rapture in Matthew 24, but the people who walked with Jesus were just too ignorant to see it. Or perhaps Jesus just got a little bit confused here. After all, he admits to not knowing the time or the hour, maybe Jesus got his illustration wrong, too. It's possible Jesus doesn't understand the way the Bible works as well as we do today, Now, I have it on good authority that Jesus never went to seminary, so maybe his exegesis is just a bit off. Fancy seminary word for you, right? Or maybe, and I've come to grow fond of this option over the past couple of weeks, maybe Jesus wants you to come to our men's Bible study Wednesday mornings at 6.30 a.m., because for the next four weeks, we are gonna take a deeper dive into our Sunday morning passages during the Advent season. Guess what we're talking about this Wednesday? This stuff. Yes, I have videos. Men, they love their videos. I've got videos. Walk you through all this. And I've been thinking about it. If I've just given you more questions than answers and you're unable to attend the Wednesday morning men's Bible study at 6.30 a.m. because either one, you're not a man, or two, 6.30 a.m. is just too darn early, um, Let's do a let's do a lunch Bible study for Advent, just for Advent. Uh Wednesdays, lunchtime, during Advent, we'll meet we'll go over the same material, uh deeper dive into the the, the Sunday morning lessons each week. If you're interested in that, meet me after, let me know, uh and, and we'll get something together. I'll tell the next service as well, and I can join it. If you don't meet me and tell me, and you try to come up here Wednesday and surprise me, I won't be here. I will leave and go to lunch. <laughs> So if y'all want to do that, tell me and I'll stick around and I'll do lunch with you. It'll bring bring your own lunch. We'll eat together. All right. So the two examples, back to our sermon, right? The the two examples in, in verses 37 to 42, they have a common theme. They are not teaching us to throw off our daily responsibilities and do nothing but pray and read our Bibles. We know that in the first century, there's this very real understanding that Christ would come back any moment. And Paul talks about the urgency of being ready. But as we read Paul's letters in chronological order, we see that his expectation of Christ's imminent return remains intact, but he also starts to tell the Thessalonians that he who does not work shall not eat. And Paul gives this big exhortation about not being idle from your daily responsibilities. Turns out it's taken a little longer than they expected. So these examples, they do make us consider what causes one to be ready... And the other one to not. Well, Jesus anticipates this question, and Jesus, as he will sometimes do, he answers the question for us with a few parables. And in each of the parables, we see the two scenarios uh, that Jesus is talking about played out for us. So, in the first one, it's the uh, the parable of the faithful and the wicked servant in verses forty five to fifty one. And the master comes home to find the faithful servant doing all that he'd ask. And the master honors him, and he puts him, uh, this faithful servant, in charge of all his possessions. But the wicked servant, he says, my master's delayed. I don't know when he will return. I'm going to do whatever I want. And the scripture says that the master returns at a time and the hour that the servant does not expect. Sound familiar? He sees what he's doing, and he casts him out. Again, there's this tension, right? We can't sit and do nothing and wait for Jesus to crack the sky, but neither can we toil about in our good works and think that because the master is delayed in coming that we can just go on and do whatever we want as long as we're just good people. And so this next parable, I'm going to unpack it for us ever so slightly because I think it resonates with us a little more uh, to our situation today. In the parable of the ten bridesmaids in chapter 25 It says that five were foolish and five were wise. And I want you to get this. It blew my mind when I first saw that the connection that Jesus was making here humbled me about the state of our churches. All ten bridesmaids go out to meet the groom, and all ten have lamps filled with oil. All ten know why they are there, and all ten are ready, and they are excited Now, five bring extra oil and five do not. And as it turns out, the groom is delayed from coming at the expected time. All ten fall asleep. And then there are all ten surprised suddenly when he comes suddenly in the night. And as they awake to the shock that the groom has come, the wicks of the lamps need to be trimmed and the oil needs to be replaced. And so you know the story, church, who is greeted by the groom and welcomed into the banquet. Okay, well, we'll read the story later, I guess. The, the five who were prepared with the extra oil. Five who were prepared with the extra oil. But what about the other five? This isn't as simple as believers and unbelievers, faithful and unfaithful. That's not the... that's not. They were ready too. They had candles. They had the oil. They, had, they knew the groom was coming. They knew who the groom was. They were waiting on him too. But the groom shuts the door in their face and he says, truly... I don't know you. And one commentator points out that the question isn't whether or not you know Jesus. The question is whether or not Jesus knows you. The wording that Jesus uses here it immediately calls to mind what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 7 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, it's not enough to simply know who Jesus is. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world. Congratulations, you have the faith of a demon. But our lives, what separates us from the knowledge of the... Our lives are are about being disciples. Uh, It's about knowing who Jesus is and then living a life that reflects that reality. So here we are, church, 2,000 years in, waiting on Christ to return. And I would say that most of us have our lamps and that they are full of oil. But are we ready to trim the wicks and refill the oil when Christ comes unexpectedly like a thief in the night? And this is exactly where Jesus takes the final verses of our passage this morning when he talks about the homeowner and the thief. Of course, you lock your doors. If you know the thief is coming, you'd be a fool not to. And I don't know about you, but I go ahead and lock my doors every night because generally the thief comes unannounced. Amen? The parallel here is not that Christ is some tricky thief trying to get something over on you. The parallel is that he's most likely coming while we are asleep and again, it's not so horrible that we admit that we have fallen asleep while we wait, right? This isn't Peter in the garden. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 24, we'd see that it's a fair implication that Jesus would be delayed, which is why Christ says that you'll probably be asleep when I get back. But that's no excuse to not be ready. Our falling asleep and not keeping watch is not the issue here. The charge to keep awake is precisely because no one knows the hour of the second coming. Now, it's been over 2,000 years, but Jesus is telling us right here in this passage that he will return. How? It doesn't matter. When? It doesn't matter. What matters is how Jesus taught us to live and what Jesus is teaching us to guard against Jesus says, don't be distracted by my delay that I come back to find you ignorant and unprepared. I'm telling you now that you will most likely be asleep when I get back, and that's okay, but that is no excuse for not being prepared. So when I was 18, I joined the Lincoln Parish Fire Department as a volunteer. There's nothing better to do when you're 18, but drive around the parish, find a burning building, and run into it. Now, if you don't know, the, uh, everybody in the Paris Fire Department is a volunteer, except for the chief and a few others, which means that we didn't stay at the fire station the way they do uh, at a regular department. We went on about our daily lives, doing our normal, everyday activities, and then we responded to fires as they happened. Now, typically, fires don't wait around for you too long to tell you that they're there uh, and wait for you to get there before they just destroy everything. They generally come unannounced. Sometimes fires come in the middle of the night while we are fast asleep. Father, do you remember that fire pager going off in the middle of the night? It was loud. But the citizens of Lincoln Parish, they were dependent on us, the volunteers, the servants to be ready. So you might ask, well, when did we get ready? We were always ready. I carried my bunker gear around with me in my car. I carried a pager around with me wherever I went. The pager went off. You dropped what you were doing. You got in your car. You went to the fire. When you got to the fire, you had to get dressed as quickly as possible so you could get in. That means if your gear is not stored properly in your car, then you spend too much time trying to put it together, trying to get dressed, and the house burns down. You have to get the gear ready before you get to the fire. Now, once you're there, all you got to do is throw it on. And when we're done with the fire, we don't go around and start taking naps. We get everything squared away in the truck and the gear, get it all squared away for the next one to come at an unexpected time in the middle of our daily lives. To know how to handle ourselves, when these moments came, we would spend hours training We would train physically, but we would also train mentally. We would run through various scenarios. What do you do if this happens? What do you do if that happens? What about this structure, that structure? What about car fire? What if the car keeps moving when there's a fire? Yes, I had one of those. Stop driving the car if it's on fire, folks. Just saying. Where's all the tools and the equipment in the truck? How does it all work? How do you get it down? We have to know all of this before the fire breaks out. We train now, not once the flames arise. Once the fire ignites and the flames rise higher, it's too late to think about what types of tools and knowledge I have at my disposal. See, we didn't know when and we didn't know where, but we knew the fire was coming. And we knew how to respond and be prepared when it happened. Once we had signed up for service at the firehouse, we began to dedicate our lives to the service of the people of Lincoln Parish. So, church, are you ready to sign up for a lifetime of service dedicated to something beyond your normal day activities? And I think most of us in this room have already answered yes to that question. But Jesus is warning us that the Christian life isn't about building country clubs. It's about building churches that are lighthouses of hope and salvation to a hurting and broken world. Our Lord and Savior sends us into the harvest in search of the least and the lost because salvation runs deeper than in time realities. God sent His Son so that we might experience salvation today. Our present redemption is a foretaste of glory divine, and that means that God sent the Holy Spirit as a first fruit and a down payment, a guarantee of our inheritance of things to come. And that's why God invites us into the mission of redeeming humanity so that the world might know the glorious riches that are offered to them by Christ Jesus, our Lord. So being prepared is not simply checking off boxes of what the Bible says to do and not doing the things that the Bible forbids. We prepare for the return of Christ by growing in the knowledge and love of God in a way that manifests itself in works of service towards our neighbor. See, the reality is, is that Christ is coming back, and our readiness for Jesus' return compels us to act more ethically than intellectually and to engage in the work of building the kingdom here and now. When there's something more eternal driving who we are and what we do, how we move about during our normal, everyday lives looks radically different than everyone else. We live not by bread alone, but by the words that come from the mouth of God. And because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, what I do in this world is shaped and formed by who I know God to be and what God has called me to do here and now. Until that final day when Jesus returns to wipe away every tear and pain, hurt, sorrow, and death will be no more. Let's pray. Father God, fill us now with your spirit. Give us the strength and the courage to know the things you have implanted in our minds and our souls. And give us the boldness to step out in your name to tell the world that you are here, that Christ is with us, and that Christ will come again. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityresting.org.